Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. We are in the Gospel of John, and it's been a good study. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm going to put those pictures back up, by the way, at Bible Camp, and I'll give a little bit more of a report when it gets um, time for worship. But as we dig into this book, remember, we're trying to understand the inspired author's purpose behind this book in proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus, but from different angles with different purposes. They all want us to believe in him, but they emphasize that to different audiences and certain character traits about Jesus and and, and theological points they will emphasize over others. John is very much concerned about evidence to Jesus being the Son of God to those that maybe are far removed from that evidence. He presents signs after signs, and according to chapter 20, 30, and 31, all those signs have been written down so that we might believe, and that believing we might have life in his name. And that's the whole idea of this book. Jesus brings life, and if we believe in him, we will have that life. So we left off in chapter 7 last week, and if you'd like to turn there, we will get into it. Uh, We finished off this section where there was a plot to kill Jesus. They didn't want, there's people that wanted to send him into the city um, so that they might arrest him and murder him and kill him. Some of the people that were plotting against Jesus were his own family, which shows how much of a, a negative response he also elicited from people. Jesus is very polarizing. You either love him or you hate him, at least there in the first century. There was no in between. And those that didn't like Jesus, they sought to kill him. And then we went into the feast where the Feast of Tabernacles is going on. And we had the dialogue between Jesus and these different individuals um, where they were challenging him and asking, why are you doing what you're doing? And where are you from? And all of that. And then we kind of left off there last week. Remember, they were mad at Jesus because he did a miracle way back when that made them upset. What was that miracle? He helped a lame man on the Sabbath, yeah. And Tom says he told him to pick up his bed. And in telling him to pick up his bed, the rulers at B said, no, you are violating the Sabbath. You can't do that. No Messiah, no godly person, no holy person would tell you to violate the Sabbath day. And they're upset about Jesus still because of that sign. And Jesus lays this out and wants them to know that, look, I'm from God. My message is from him. You know, you need to follow me. And he also points out that they themselves are guilty of violating the Sabbath too. And let's read the illustration that he gives. Actually, someone else read. Um, John 7, 19 through 24, and that's where we finished off last week. John 7, 19 through 24. Read it out loud for the class, please. Moses, and not technically Moses, but God, Jesus even clarifies that. I love that. God gave a command regarding circumcision back in the Old Testament. And would they fulfill that command on a Sabbath day? Yes. And by doing that, were they violating the Sabbath? What? What's that? They're doing a work on the Sabbath day. Now, that's obviously okay with God in that situation because God commanded circumcision. What Jesus wants them to do is to not look at the Sabbath day as a do this, don't do that, but look at the Sabbath for what it was for and the judge righteously not just by appearances. And the whole idea is, look, a good thing happened. 
in the name of God, this man was healed, and I told him to pick up his bed, and it happened on the Sabbath. Judge righteously. Isn't that just like doing another good thing, like circumcision on the Sabbath, which, by the way, came from God? He wants them to think spiritually. Quit thinking this legalistic, I want to try to prove you wrong kind of mindset, but instead view things the way God wants you to view them. But the people didn't like it, did they? They wanted to kill him. Verse 25, read that for us. Anyone? Yeah, so now some people see this and they go, wait a second. Isn't this the guy that they wanted to kill? And then 26, we read, and we saw this last week, that others are saying, well, they can't seem to shut him up. He seems to shoot them down all the time with his words. Uh, Maybe he is special because he's performing these signs. He's shooting down their arguments and all of that. So when we get to verse 32, we find out how upset the Pharisees were. And I'm skimming through this because we did this last week. But in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. They didn't like the fact that the crowd was asking questions. Why? What are they afraid of? They're afraid of the truth. What else are they afraid of? Their position, their influence, their power. Yeah, they sense their power slipping away and they don't like it. So they hear the people muttering. They hear the questions being asked. They go, we have to shut this down. This is bad. But Jesus said, verse 33, for a little while longer I am with you and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Is he not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me and where I am you cannot come? What is Jesus talking about? What do you think? He tells him, I'm gonna go away and you're not gonna be able to find me. What's he talking about, you think? I think to the Father. That's my theory here. You know, he's about to leave this realm and they're not going to be able to find him. Probably most likely talking about, you know, after crucifixion, that, that moment, the three days before he came back. Could be talking literally about, well, he's gonna go away for a while, but I don't think that's what this is all about. He again throws out a phrase that the audience isn't necessarily going to understand just yet. I'm going to a place where you're not going to find me, but there's going to be people there to hear that. And later on, when Jesus does go away, they're going to remember that phrase. Verse 37. So on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He said a similar conversation before to who? lady at the well, and in chapter 6, remember, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, that same kind of terminology. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, to whom those who believed in him were to receive. But the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus gets up now and says, look, if you come to me and you receive me, you will never thirst again because I'm going to give you something that from the innermost living waters, it's going to come to you and it's going to be awesome. And then John tells us what he's talking about here. Verse 39, when Jesus talks about in this moment, that if you come to me, you're going to have living water in you. John tells us that Jesus is predicting what? The Spirit, yeah. They haven't got him yet in that, that way. And he says, you're, you're gonna receive that Spirit 
It's not yet given, though, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When Jesus goes to the cross, you know, that's when it changes. Spirit is made available. Acts 2.38, you know, Peter gets up and says, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We go into the book of Acts. We see Holy Spirit doing all sorts of stuff. But it hasn't happened yet, but Jesus is prophesying that it will. Thoughts or comments? Yeah. If you didn't hear Greg, he says, the, that would be very compelling at that time because they had to put in work to get water. We don't. I wanted a bottle of water before coming or opened up a fridge. I have two fridges, okay? I mean, come on. No, that's probably like 1% of the people in the world have that. But I go in the garage, and that's the water bottle fridge. And in there, I got a water bottle out to come here. I took a bath this morning because I'm short and I can fit in a bathtub. And uh, so I was able to turn on the knob and water came out of it. I didn't have to work for it. My bill's on auto pay, okay? It's, it's, it's easy. But they had to go to wells. They had to draw it. It was a tedious task. So this would be a big deal of an illustration. And then for Jesus to say, I will give you that living water in you, shows how important the spirit is in the life that he will provide. Other thoughts? All right, let's keep going. Verse 40. I really want to get to chapter 8 today is my plan. So verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So now people are wondering, who is this guy? And you have two different phrases, the prophet and the Christ. Well, what are they talking about? Who's this prophet? Is it separate from the Christ? Okay, there's been many prophets before. I'm with you on that, except it doesn't say this is a prophet. He says the prophet. Maybe John the Baptist kind of idea. What else? My, my theory is that first off, these people are wondering and they're confused and they are figuring this is something from God. They just don't quite get it yet. That's okay. We're like that in our faith journey, right? I mean, we're like, man, I, I want to follow Jesus. I don't really get what Jesus is all about, but I definitely believe in God. I know that the Bible is true and I need to follow. I don't really know how. I mean, that, that's normal. That's okay. I mean, we all get like that and we all grow in our faith process. I mean, think about what you know now about Jesus versus what you knew when you were converted. I mean, there's a growth process in there. I think a lot of them thought that he was a fulfillment of a prophecy um, in the Old Testament in Malachi about um, Elijah. There was this idea that the Elijah was going to come again. Now, we know from Scripture that that was a figure of speech talking about like John the Baptist and that idea, as Carolyn mentioned, but I think a lot of people were still looking for that reincarnated prophet. There was a belief system that a reincarnated prophet was going to arrive. They didn't, but that was kind of how they interpreted some of the scriptures. There's also those scriptures that talked about a coming anointed one. The word Christ means anointed one. That's why right after this, it's going to mention David. Um, it means a special kingly anointed one. That's also a term for the Messiah. Um, it was a Greek term. So some are saying maybe it's that prophet we heard about. Others are saying, no, no, no. Maybe he's that anointed one that was predicted. They didn't know, but they saw something special in him. But then others, at the end of verse 41, had their doubts. Why? Where he came from. Yeah. He didn't come from, um, you know, Jerusalem or something like that. And we're going to talk about Bethlehem here in a second. But 
he came from Galilee. Was he born in Galilee? In fact, what, who can tell me the timeline of Jesus' early home steads? Where were they? Anybody remember? Where was he born? Bethlehem. After Bethlehem, they fled. Where'd they go? Egypt. After they were in Egypt for some time, where'd they settle? Nazareth. So there was some traveling here. But primarily, when people viewed him, his hometown was Galilee. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in, I was born in Fresno. Um, we lived in Clovis for a later part of my childhood. Moved to Visalia in like 2001. Except for time I spent in another state going to school. I've been in Visalia now for 20 years. Um, so I, I could say I'm from Visalia. And people, when they think of Cliff, don't think of Cliff as Cliff from Fresno. They think of probably Cliff from Visalia. Jesus is known as the guy from Galilee. That's where, you know, his father did his work and his family was and all of that. They don't like, they're kind of confused. They're like, but the Christ isn't supposed to come from Galilee because verse 42, the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was. There's prophecies that said the Christ was going to come like David did in the city of David, Bethlehem, right? And they're confused. What's their confusion about? They didn't remember where he was born. I mean, simply that, really. I mean, they didn't know all of the places he was from. They just knew he was that guy from up in Galilee. We know, looking at historical record, of course, in Scripture, oh, yes, he was born in Bethlehem and that kind of idea. So verse 43, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. So they argue. They're like, we can't get along. We can't figure out what this is. And there's a bunch of bickering about who this Jesus is. And in fact, while that's going on, some people also wanted to kill him. They wanted to at least arrest him and lay hands on him. That kind of idea. Thoughts or comments up through verse 44? Yeah. No one bothered to go and ask. Tom brings up a good point. Because don't we do that too with a bunch of things? We speculate. We gossip instead of actually talking to the person. Dealing with the problem head on and asking. Hey, we have the, I mean, what if one of them came up to Jesus and go, hey, we think you're from God. I know that might seem weird, but uh, are, you, are you that prophet guy? Are you the Christ? We're kind of confused because you're from Galilee, but explain this to us. But they didn't ask. They just speculated. Other thoughts? All right, let's pick back up then. John 7, verse 45. It says, the officers then came to the chief priest and the Pharisees, and they said to him, why did you not bring him? Wait, well, hold up here. I can be arrest him. The officers answered. What'd they say? Someone read it out loud. Never has a man spoke in the way this man speaks. The officers of the Pharisees, because see, the religious leaders, the Roman occupation allowed for Jewish religious leaders, the clerics and that kind of thing, to enforce Jewish law under the umbrella of Roman law. Okay, that's why when Jesus is crucified, you have, they go to Herod, they go to Pilate and all that kind of stuff, and the chief priest, and there's all of that. You're like, why are they going to all these different places? Rome was in charge of Judea, but Rome allowed Judea to operate as its own entity, especially they're among the Jews with their own religious laws and all of that. They didn't have the manpower to be the local police force in every single little village and all of that. So they allowed the religious leaders to do that. You see this a little bit even in Muslim countries today, 
where you'll have in smaller places, the imams will, will like kind of rule the city and they will have their people and they will enforce, um, you know, Islamic law and that kind of idea. Under, because it happens in places like even like India or Pakistan and stuff like that where you also have your normal government kind of stuff working over it. That's kind of what we see here. The Pharisees were, they're kind of the religious leaders. They apparently had officers too and people that worked for them to handle these civil issues and all of that religion and their law. And really, the Romans were like, as long as you guys don't riot and rebel, kind of do your own thing. Leave you alone and our empire still stands. Well, these Pharisees had their officers and they were told to go arrest Jesus and they said, we can't. There's something special about him. I love that phrase. Verse 46, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. There's something special about Jesus. And the more I've spent time in scripture over the years, the more I'm drawn to just the dialogues of Jesus. I love hearing my Lord talk, reading it, hearing how he interacts with people, what he says. It's so amazing. It draws you in. And it's always like, turning the world upside down, confronting this over here. Well, yet, you know, praising this over here. It just, it's so amazing. These officers saw that. They said, never has a man spoken this way. So the Pharisees don't like it. What did the Pharisees ask him? Someone read verses, uh, read verses 47 through 52 so I can sip on this water. 47 through 52. This is a lot to unpack right here. But as Greg read, first off, the Pharisees get angry at the officers. And what's the accusation? Yeah. Oh, are you one of those guys that were led astray too? Are you so weak-minded that you gave in to him? That's kind of the tone, right? And they're like, what, was that what you're doing? And then they go, um, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? We don't do this. But the crowd, which does not know the law is accursed, they're saying, look, the reason these people are gathered and following him is because they don't know the law. If they would have read their Bibles, they would know he's, he's not him, right? That's kind of what they're saying. And it's kind of a straw man argument, right? Or, and um, if you knew the law, you would agree with us. I hate that kind of stuff, by the way. And we're guilty of it. Preachers are. They do this in writing a lot of times. They'll say things like, Sound gospel preachers would not believe such hogwash. Okay, first off, people need to be able to think. And then, and they do this. Or, if you studied your Bible, you would come to this conclusion. If you love the truth, you would believe this. That could be a tool of manipulation. And that's kind of what they're doing here. They said, if you know, this crowd which does not know the law, no one would ever want to be accused of not knowing the law. We do it like, with political terms even. A good conservative, a good liberal, a good progressive wouldn't believe these things, right? That same kind of idea. And that's what they're doing here. Well, you don't know the law. Well, no, they're actually thinking for themselves and actually interpreting the law the way it was supposed to be interpreted. The old law was designed to point everybody to who? Jesus, right? And they're starting to see it, and the people don't like that they're losing their power. And then look who shows up in verse 50. Who is it? Nicodemus. Where did we hear about Nicodemus before? Yeah, 
way, way stuck in the night. Yeah, way back in chapter three, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and we have one of the most amazing dialogues in scripture where we have passages like John 3, 16 and others and being born again of the water and spirit, all of that being laid out to Nicodemus. Nicodemus heard all that, went away. It doesn't seem that Nicodemus went on 100% into, you know, discipleship and all that here. But Nicodemus does come with some questions in verse 50. So he shows back up and he says to them, look, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? What is Nicodemus asking them to do? What did Don say earlier? Yeah, talk to him, ask him. He says, look, our law, guys, says this. And my opinion here is that Nicodemus kept that dialogue between him and Jesus in his heart for a long time. And it has been swirling around in there. It's been moving him and compelling him. And, and he's been torn about it back and forth. And he wants others to have that chance to hear him. He thinks, you know, maybe if these other people heard him too, they would hear what, what I heard from Jesus. He says, look, our law tells us we're, I mean, we're supposed to hear from him and ask what he's doing, which pretty much any legitimate civil kind of law would do that, right? You know, you need to talk to the guy who's accused, and Nicodemus is asking for that, but these people don't care about the law. They don't care about what's right. They only care about killing Jesus. Other thoughts? No. They have a hard time accepting that change that there's a, of the laws being fulfilled. They have a hard time with that. Nicodemus asks them to talk to Jesus, but do they do it? No. Why? Why would they be so afraid to talk to Jesus? Yeah, there's a chance they might be wrong and they'll lose control. And what often happens when people try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus? Talking, why it's not fighting. But, well, yeah, he speaks with authority and they come out looking really, really foolish. And they don't want that. So as long as they can view Jesus as this faceless enemy over here, they can avoid actually dealing with him. We sometimes do this too. Um, at one of my sermons I did at Bible camp, I was talking about that. Look, our enemies are not sinners, okay? The enemy is the devil and his forces. And we have a tendency sometimes to kind of paint with a broad stroke to non-believers. We'll say, well, the world acts like this. Those people out there, and I, I'm hoping none of us do that, but you know what I'm saying? Like, we, we, we separate it where as long as we can look at everybody as a faceless enemy, we don't actually have to treat them like people and interact. Whereas when we start thinking, oh, that group over there that I'm characterizing as whatever it is, Take a sin, for example. Take any sin. We say, well, those adulterers over there. You know, no, that, that's a person, that's a person, that's a person, that's a person. And we got to look at it that way. They didn't want to view Jesus as a person here or God in the flesh. We know that. They wanted to just deal with him from outsider perspective and shut him down. So when Nicodemus comes to him, comes to them and says, hey, we need to talk to the guy. What do they say? Verse 52. Yeah, they're like, oh, you must be from there too. You're probably one of them loser Galileans. And we know nothing good comes from Galilee. 
So when in doubt, pull the race card or something and like insult their place of origin and say, ah, you're just one of them Galileans. And don't we do that too in arguments? <laughs> the big one that you heard, like, you don't hear it so much now because all of us millennials have gotten old, but it used to be like, well, the millennials, they're like, like this. Now it's, we pick on Gen Z and us millennials really don't like them. Um, but, you know, it's, well, the millennials did this, or they, that's just how they are, or the liberals, or those right-wing extremists, or those fundamentalists, or, you know, whatever it is. You, you, you take a term, and you use that to characterize the group, and that's what, oh, you're just one of them Galileans. They're there, little Galilean. You don't know any better. Let us smart people figure this out for you. It's kind of what they were doing. So the section ends there in verse 52. Any thoughts or comments up through that moment there? Jonah's from Galilee. I don't remember that off the top of my head, but I will take your word for it because, huh, I wonder how they viewed him because, I mean, maybe negatively because of the stories of Jonah too. Maybe, I wonder if that's maybe where the toner of that no prophet from Galilee because he can't, I don't know. But yeah, that's interesting. And then you think of Jesus fulfilling Jonah and all of that. That's cool. I'll look into that more. Wayne's a smart guy. I recommend you guys talk to him. Oh, okay. Don is the brains of that. Which, by the way, in Bible class, a lot of times the comments I get is because Zinnia will whisper it in my ear because she's too afraid to raise her hand. And all this sound really smart. Um, but, all right, anything else up through verse 52? All right, now we get into this section here. We've got to do a little bit of talking about it. Verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11 is a, a, a familiar story. and. I love the interaction. We'll talk about all that as we get into it. Your Bible, though, probably has some kind of brackets around this section of Scripture. And um, we, I've, been, I've been trying to be open with all of this, and we'll talk about the challenges when it comes to formulating the Bible text. I, I believe that the fact that we can look at it from a scientific standpoint kind of helps bring validity to the text because we're open and honest. We're not hiding it. Um, for example, with the Quran, um, that I, I was listening to stuff on that a while back, that when they decided what was the accurate copy of the Quran, they burned all the other ones. So that way they can narrow down and say this is the only accurate copy of the Quran. When it comes to Scripture, the New Testament, we don't do that. We don't have religious leaders that go, this is the only one that we use, burn all the other ones. So because of that, you have variant readings and you have to approach it more scientifically, which I believe is good, as opposed to just a couple people telling me what I should believe. Um, all that being said, John 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, is very much a contested passage of Scripture. It's not so much contested as that it didn't happen, but our Bible scholars don't know where to put it. Um, and here's why. Your earliest manuscripts of the New Testament that we have don't have it. At least they don't have it here. Um, this, in John chapter 8, it wasn't really found there to much later in manuscripts. What happened was, is the manuscripts that were used to form the King James Bible put it there, and now if you ever break from that tradition, people get all upset. So we've always had it in this section here. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with the flow of the text in John chapter 8. Because verse 52, it says, 
And they were talking about him being from Galilee, and then they said, you know, no prophet arises out of there. And then in verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them. The woman that caught an adultery dialogue ends in verse 11 with going from sin no more, and then it just doesn't fit. Most scholars, and um, what I've seen from my own research, which I'm not a scholar, but from what I've read and studied and looked at, this section of scripture was probably oral tradition. And the sense was that this happened and everybody talked about it. And it spread around and it spread around and people started writing it down and remembering it. And in fact, you can look at early Christian writings from the second, third, and fourth century and they reference this occasion. So early Christians had a recollection of this interaction. So it probably, I mean, there's a lot of things Jesus did that weren't written down, right? I mean, so if you have a whole bunch of Christians during the time or after the time of Jesus talking about something Jesus did, and they're all kind of attesting to the same interaction, you probably go, okay, that happened. So it was written down. They assume that this circulating story of Jesus when scribes and stuff were putting together these New Testament books, had this, and it was always kind of floating around, like, what do we do with this? Some put it in John chapter 8, where we have it. Others put it at the end of John 21. Others say that, no, the, di- the grammar doesn't even fit John. It sounds a lot like Luke, and they put it into Luke chapter 21, verse 38, following there. And actually, there's, I, I know at least I think one manuscript has it in Luke. So I believe this happened. There's a good chance Luke wrote about it, and somehow that leaflet kind of got put in the wrong spot. Yes. There's a lot of things we say that the Bible says that the Bible doesn't say. Yeah. Well, that's another, that's another dialogue for another time, but I, I do agree with you that I, I think we need, that sometimes we don't talk enough about maybe textual variants and it comes across as dishonest because, okay, all of a sudden we give a Bible to somebody and then they come across, let's say, Acts 8.37 and go, well, wait a second. This says that that verse really wasn't found till like the 600s, but the Bible, it was, this happened in the 100s. You know, how do we deal with that? I think that an open and honest discussion of the very few, because to the whole of Scripture, there's very few disputed sections. And the ones that are disputed don't, bring in or remove any kind of core tenet of Christianity. If this passage didn't exist in Scripture, it wouldn't affect our salvation whatsoever. Um, So I also like the fact that anybody, anybody can go online now. I guess you got to know Greek probably and stuff like that, but and look at every single fragment, manuscript, papyrus, codex, that we have and go, okay, here's what we have. Let's put it together. I think that's kind of cool because it allows for scientific method to also come into play where, okay, which ones are the oldest? Okay, oldest are probably more accurate because they're closer to the time of Jesus. Oh, wait a second. There's this weird verse. For example, a lot of times the variants that you'll see in scripture or something like one will say Christ and the other will say Christ Jesus. Well, that makes sense because if you're copying things all day long, 
in your mind, you might hear Christ Jesus, even though maybe the word was just Christ. Does not matter whatsoever. But, I mean, you ever played the game telephone where you whisper something in somebody's ear and then you go down? You kind of get some of those little filler words kind of things. Well, through the scientific method, you can go, oh, all these manuscripts from Alexandria, Egypt, have the phrase Christ Jesus, whereas every other one from up here in Caesarea, over here in Asia, all have just the word Christ. Probably, using a scientific method, what happened was, is some scribe over here accidentally wrote in the word Jesus next to the word Christ, and it got copied and copied and copied and branched out over there. You can see how that happens. Um, this one's a little bit more difficult, you know, to kind of pin down. Um, it doesn't really fit 100% anywhere in Scripture, but the fact that it was floating around and there was so much referencing of it in the early church writings, I think we can believe that this happened, although it wasn't probably written by John. So before we get into it, any questions about that? If that's kind of over your head a little bit, because I know I rambled and, and stuff, there's some simple books out there that kind of help explain. Um, it's called textual criticism, which don't think, oh, the word criticism is bad. Textual criticism is good. Higher criticism is bad for the most part. But textual criticism is basically scientifically trying to form an accurate representation of the original text. Um, we do that with other things, like Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey. We don't have the original copies of that. We have copies of copies of copies. So we use methods to formulate that. I think like even Shakespeare, we don't have like original works. But we have copies of copies of copies, and sometimes we have to work to formulate what is an accurate representation of the original. Anything else? Yes. Textual criticism, and I'm probably not giving you an accurate definition of it, is the method of trying to formulate an accurate representation of the original autographs, the original writings. Okay, when Paul first wrote 1 Thessalonians, what did it look like? Did it look like the copy we had from 1500 AD? Or does it look like these copies we have over from 150 AD? And then trying to determine, because where it gets challenging is those older ones fall apart. We don't have as many accurate pages. So all of a sudden, we're missing the last 10 verses. So now we ask, oh, did Paul not actually write those last 10 verses? Or did that page fall off? You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. It's exactly that. Yeah. It's exactly that. Just for some reason with the Bible, people get all weirded out. They're like, well, I thought God divinely kept it in the perfect leather-bound King James form forever. And you don't realize that, no, there was thousands of copies. I mean, we have, compared to Homer, we, like, there's like a few hundred, we have thousands of Bible manuscripts, which shows, first off, its impact and its validity, but it also makes for challenges to try to make sense of all of those, which the transparency and openness of our textual critics is awesome because we can see how they worked. And as you dig into it, we can go, oh, here's why that verse in my English Bible in the year 2020 is in brackets. Now, we unwind it a lot because our English Bible is based on a Greek text, which is based on a whole bunch of myriad of manuscripts. And the question is, how did they form that Greek text 
from those manuscripts, and then how do they translate it in English? So our little arguments about English translations don't even matter compared to all that other stuff. I saw you. I think so. I, I don't know the specifics. It says, I do know that where they found um, markings, like um, annotated stuff, like you'll write notes. You know how you write notes on the side of your Bible? Back then, people would write notes on the side of scrolls. And sometimes their handwriting and the scroll handwriting looks an awful lot alike. So then you get into, wait a second, that was a, a note that's there. So there's all of that. And then they use imaging. They use all of that kind of stuff to, to put things together with it. Um, it's really cool. One of my instructors in preaching school, um, Denny Petrello, was at an exhibit um, where they had the Codex Bizet, which that might mean nothing to you. But of our biggest, most important manuscripts, we have a few codexes, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Bizet, and a few others that are full, like almost copies of the New Testament. That's why those are totally awesome to have. Um, Denny, who's a, a Bible scholar, got a PhD and all that kind of stuff, was at a museum where they were um, presenting the Codex Bizet, and he was getting to look at it. And he asked the curator, hey, can you turn the page in it to Mark? Because if you ever notice, your Bible sometimes has brackets at the end of Mark because the end of Mark is disputed a little bit. The Codex Bizet has the long ending of Mark. And he got the curator to turn to that so he could actually see that in a text, which is totally awesome. But it gets better. The curator goes, would you like to see some papyrus fragments that we have in the back? And he's like, yeah. So he got to go to the back. And they have, you know, their fancy little lights and all that kind of stuff that they do and wearing gloves. He got to look at papyrus fragments that they were trying to figure out where they were from. And they were just in the process of doing that. And Danny was like, well, I think that's from Jonah right there because Danny's a nerd when it comes to key words. And he memorizes whatever the repeated words are in books. So he goes, well, no, it's using that word, that word, that word, which is used a ton in Jonah. I believe it. that's from Jonah. And then they had a whole dialogue about we don't trust this other guy. But anyway, that was totally awesome, that kind of situation. But that's how cool this stuff is. We can actually hands-on look at those kinds of things and know what we're looking at. All that being said, I think John 8, 1 through 11 happened. Don't know where it belongs in the Bible, but we will have to look at it next week. It's a really cool story. And the fact that so many Christians said it happened, it probably did. And let's look at how it is recorded in a historical way in our Bibles. Yes. Oh, there is. There's a lot. Of, I mean, um, there's a lot of stuff that's lost in um, translation and that kind of stuff too. Not that we're not losing it. All that being said, if you're new, any variant, any disputed passage, what's really cool is none of them really change anything. There isn't anything that all of a sudden like, oh, if we remove that from the Bible, that means that we actually bow down to a statue or something. There is none of that. Okay. It's very uh, it's a tiny fraction of a tiny part of a giant hole, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. It's, it's so insignificant, the variant sections. Um, and um, so I, God, through his providence, I believe, has very much preserved an accurate representation of the writings of, of the apostles. Yes. Yes, how we got the Bible by Neil Lightfoot is a really good one, and it's written in a very simple way to understand. So I do recommend that book um, by Neil Lightfoot. Another one I like, is from text to translations. That one's much more deeper. From text to translations, I believe it's by Wagner, spelled Wagner. But um, I, I could be wrong on that one. But that one's a good one from text to translations. I like that one. Also, Geisler and Nix have a book called General Introduction to the Bible, 
it was my textbook for school that was also pretty good. All right, well, we're going to stop right here. If you have any questions afterwards, hit me up. Um, I'll put the camp slideshow back up on the screen, and you have some free time until we come back in here for worship. You are dismissed. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia Audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on-the-go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless. Thank you.